Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. So over the last uh, three weeks, we have been looking at a very familiar story for a lot of us. If any of you have had a background in church, if any of you have spent any time in Sunday school or youth group, you've heard the story of Jonah. Um, It begins with a prophetic call to Jonah to go to this town of Nineveh and to proclaim against it, it says in chapter one. Jonah does the complete opposite of that. Instead of going to the northeast, which is where Nineveh in Assyria would have been, he goes to the southwest port of Joppa, gets on a ship, goes down into the second deck of that ship, which is headed for Tarshish, which is in the completely opposite direction. We meet Jonah as one who is obstinate towards this call that God has placed on his life, and he's going away from where he should be going. For those of us that are familiar with this book, we also understand that as the story progresses, things don't go well for Jonah. As he's on the ship, it begins to encounter rough waters. We meet a ragtag group of sailors that when they see this happening, their first response is to drop to their knees and pray to their gods, any gods that were represented on the ship. When they find Jonah, They ask him to to engage in prayer as well and question him as to why this is happening to them. They know from the backstory that he is fleeing from his God and they're concerned with why and what that is doing to them as a people. Their lives are threatened because of Jonah's disobedience. Finally, we get a confession from Jonah where he says, I fear Yahweh, the one who actually made the seas upon which we are sailing even now. There's a couple different ways that you could read that confession. The way that I've been reading it is kind of tongue in cheek. Jonah has really done nothing in the first couple chapters to demonstrate any sort of allegiance to Yahweh. He wants to escape the call, end up in a foreign land, not so that he can hide from God, but so that he can just blend in with a bunch of people that don't know Yahweh, that don't know sacrifice, that don't know uh, the temple, that don't know the scriptures and the traditions of the Israelite people. He just wants to blend in. For us as 21st century American readers, that issue is very uh, appropriate to a lot of our settings. At times, we don't want to be known as the Christian. We don't want to be known as the person who's pursuing God. Perhaps we just want to blend in. I know that um, in my life, 
I struggle at times with this call of, of being a pastor, especially when I'm at home, when I'm walking my dog and when I'm interacting with neighbors that sometimes I don't want to be pastor. I just want to go inside and watch Netflix. I just want to blend in. Right now they've just released HGTV's like greatest hits on Netflix and Kate and I are just steamrolling them. I mean, we're just <laughs> back to back. Of course, that question comes up the very... Also tongue-in-cheek, are you still watching? Yes, of course I am, continue. Um, at times, I just want to be Josh. I just want to blend in. At times, too, it, it's not just in my interactions with people, but it's with obedience or lack thereof. I just want, at times, to, to lose it. I just want, at times, to not obey, perhaps. There's these moments when we don't want to be the people that we're called to be. I don't know if that's us running from a vocational calling or us running from um, the things that God is calling us to that are more generic, like loving him and loving each other and loving the people around us. And at times we don't want to listen to that. We want to go in the opposite direction. And not only that, we want to get down in the second deck of the boat and just fall asleep. Jonah, as he's sleeping, that's the same word for sleep in the Hebrew is used of, of Adam in Genesis 2 when God puts him into a deep sleep so that he can create woman from his side. Now, wherever you stand on, on that story, just hear the, the resonances that a Jewish audience would have heard. This guy is not just in a light nap. He is completely gone. And that symbolizes sort of his rebellion. In... Um, the end of Genesis chapter, excuse me, Jonah chapter one and into Jonah chapter two, we see um, Jonah being swallowed by a fish. Finally, it's it's decided that they're going to throw him overboard um, to try to save themselves. And the sailors show a, a great bit of humanity in that. They don't want to do this, not only because they don't want to kill Jonah, but they don't want to incur the wrath of Jonah's God upon them. They see what's happening on the seas, and they don't want that to happen to them as well. Finally, they throw him overboard and it says that God had appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And the way that we hear this story a lot of times is that fish, um, first of all, it completely boggles our mind as to how it's possible and what's going on there. And I've been encouraging us to kind of sidestep those issues, not to, to think about it um, in a non-historical light, but just to see the theology behind that, not to lose Jonah's God in light of Jonah's fish. But we see Jonah being swallowed by this fish because God had appointed this fish um, as an agent of grace. There would have been no chance for Jonah in those waters without this chosen vessel to save him. This book of Jonah is about grace at its core. It's about a grace that Jonah did not want to allow other people to experience. We learn in Jonah chapter four, the reason why he ran because he knew that God was good and loving and slow to anger, abounding in love, that God would have been merciful and he did not want that mercy to be extended to this people. The backstory is these are the people that have oppressed his own people. These are the people, the political um, group that had been threatening their safety and their livelihood for years. And Jonah did not want God to be merciful to them. One scholar says, if Jonah himself experienced deliverance from a deserved death, the fact that he had been running, the fact that he had been disobeying, the fact that they were throwing him overboard, Jonah kind of accepted that fate of, I'm going to die. If 
Jonah had experienced a deliverance from a deserved death, maybe then he will have some ability to commiserate with the citizens of the city and nation to whom he had been called to preach. That is the setup for where we meet Jonah now in Nineveh preaching this, this message. Um, as we oftentimes do, we're just gonna go through the text. I'm gonna make some comments about some things. Um, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim. This, this whole setup here, except for that a second time, is pretty much the exact same wording in chapter one. It's almost like we see Jonah going through this, making the wrong decision, and then being placed in adverse situations. Now in verse three, it's almost like a complete reboot where things are starting up again. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah again a second time. Hear the theology in that. The God that we serve is a God that allows us to have second chances. It seems like such a, uh, a surfacey devotional type of point, but hear this. Jonah had escaped a deserved death by the grace and mercy of God, and God is still entrusting him to do this work. There's a lesson here that Jonah is trying to shirk, but God won't let him. He wants to teach, he wants to mold, he wants to, to transform Jonah um, from what's happening here. It says, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city. Um, there's some discussion here about Nineveh and the size of it. We'll, we'll get to that here in a bit. But Jonah, we should see, gets up and he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He's taking the same command, the verbs of the same command and just and kind of enacting them. Jonah is supposed to get up and go and we see here that he gets up and he goes. This is the complete opposite of chapter one. Now we meet jo Jonah who is obeying. Jonah is, according to one scholar, a new man, a new creature, like the one who has passed through baptism. Jonah has been transformed. And in that transformation, he is now one who is going to obey his God. In the first couple of chapters, we do not see that at all. When I read this story, I take what we, what we see here and then bring it down to us and to our level and see how this sort of scenario begs the question, if one, we have been transformed and two, if we have been transformed, are we obeying or are we set in the ways that I was depicting earlier where we don't want to? We become lazy, we become cynical, we become jaded, we become skeptical because of the situations that we've been through where we haven't maybe seen God be good or be loving to us. We've seen it all around and we become jaded and we don't want to obey. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, keep my commands. This same rhetoric comes up in 1 John as well, where the call to the disciples and to us by, um, by implication is, if you love Christ, if you're devoting yourself to Christ, your life shows evidence of that. If you're devoting yourself to following Jesus, you become about what Jesus is about. You become one who cares about justice and mercy and forgiveness and grace. This is not something that is, is cheaply offered. Um, grace is something that costs us as Bonhoeffer creates this tension between cheap grace and costly grace um, in his famous book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, blanked on that one. Paul says something about this as well. In Romans chapter six, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. In the Greek, the terms are meganoita. It is the strongest negation at the time. Paul, in his use of language, was quite colorful. 
This is akin to Paul saying, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Health class is a good place for you to learn about things, about your body and about nutrition. But, but Paul, I mean, he, he engages and says, no way, no how. Heck no, except step it up a notch. Um, Paul, uh, as well in, in Philippians chapter two, it's like giving him, him, or I believe it's Philippians chapter three, it's basically saying, here's the laundry list as to why I should be viewed as, as a good person and one who's worthy of all this stuff. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee. According to the law, I was blameless but it's all rubbish. The colloquial term at the time is scubalon, which means it's all a big pile of flaming shish kebabs are also good to eat on a barbecue. Like Paul's using this language and pushing it where he's saying, we don't take advantage of God's grace and do whatever it is that we want to do. He's saying, once we've been changed and transformed, you're not trying to get away with stuff anymore. You're actually trying to walk in light and love that Christ has bestowed upon you. That's the life that Jesus claims to give us to the full. It's a life that's not bound by sin and, and addictions and chains and those sorts of things. Those things are broken through Christ. That does not mean that once you accept him, your life is gonna be easy like that. In fact, Jesus says, it's gonna be tough. But he does at least say that through the power of the spirit, there's freedom and we don't take advantage of the gospel in this way. Um, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer says, along with the grace, there is always the demand. It's God's expectation of obedient response because God does not save for no purpose. God has a plan for this world and God saves in order to further that purpose. This is why we're here. This is what we talk about. The gospel is not just about you. The gospel is not just about you not sinning anymore. The gospel is about Christ redeeming all things to himself, Christ restoring everything to what it once was. And when we are brought into that, we become part of that plan. We become part of that project. We become part of that restoration. It's not just about me or you, it's about us. And it's not just about us here, it's about us becoming the hands and feet of Christ. That entrance into the family, that raise your hand or sign the commitment card, it demands something of you. If we're just here because we don't wanna go to hell, we're missing out on what the gospel actually is. Life, love, mercy, ultimately, hope because this world is broken because the things that we go through at times are terrible but we have hope that God is actually doing what he says he's doing and redeeming it and making all things new continuing on in Jonah it says now Nineveh was exceedingly large literally in the text it says it's a great city even according to God's standards or God's perspectives the author is really ramping up what we should be thinking about Nineveh archaeologically this is suspect um, it says that it's a three days walk across there's a lot of debate on if that's actually true because they haven't found anything that would lead us to think that at the time of this, that the city was that big. One group of folks would say that actually at its peak, it was three miles across. 
it does not take three days to walk three miles. Um, but here, typical storytelling, we're kind of upping the ante a bit. Now, are there, there are other people that think that that's questionable as well, but the, here's the point of it. Nineveh at the time is the city. Nineveh represents everything that is evil in Jonah's mind. It's massive, it's big, it's daunting, it's scary. It's like us walking into bad example, like the sketchy part of town. And that just keeps going on and on and on for miles and miles and miles and miles for days even until we can get to the center of town. This is what Jonah might've been thinking as a Hebrew walking through this, this place. Jonah began to go into the city and after going a day's walk, he began to proclaim 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So this foreigner shows up and says, I've got a word from the Lord in 40 days, you will die. Can I stay in a hotel somewhere? Do you guys have a place where I could just stay for the night or some food? I'm kind of hungry. I've been walking for a while. And the, oh, the message, yeah, 40 days and you will die. But I'm kind of hungry. You know, I don't really want to be here. I actually almost drowned. A fish swallowed me. It's been a, it's been a time. I'd prefer not to eat seafood if possible. But <laughs> we don't hear a lot from Jonah as what he's saying Beyond this, we don't know how this message um, would have been heard at the time. We know what they do with it, but we, this is just, this story is crazy and it keeps getting crazy on top of crazy. And I want you to see that. Uh, that line leads me to think about just bad sermons where you go in, uh, maybe unprepared and it just doesn't come off real well. I've told you guys this story. I'll tell you again, the first sermon that I ever taught. It, I was a youth intern for my home church where I grew up. And my internship really consisted of me going to the youth room, laying down on the couch from 8 a.m. to about 12 uh, noon or so. And I, at the time I was reading the Left Behind series. Don't judge. It was all in preparation for Nicolas Cage's big on-screen moment, which will happen or has happened. Is it straight to DVD? Is it over? Did we miss it? We missed it. Okay, um, we missed that moment. But I, I didn't do anything, but I, I was scheduled to, to teach at the youth service. And the way that it happened at our church, like nobody really wanted to be there. The adults were just kind of really patronizing the kids because the music was loud and the speaking wasn't good. And I remember I just wanted to tell one story about this Olympic moment where this guy was running a race and... He tripped and he fell. And then his dad somehow broke the barriers and ended up on the, the track arena with him. And he had a shirt on that said, have you hugged your kid today? And they like crossed the finish line like 19 minutes after everyone else did. But it's just like that, that moment, you know? I wanted to tell that story and tie it into a text from Paul where he talks about running the race. And that's really all I had to say. Basically what I just told you right there was my sermon in a nutshell. So I talked for about four minutes and got to that point, I was like, yeah, that's pretty neat. And it hits you at that moment. I don't know if you've had a presentation. I don't know if you've been in front of people where they're just staring at you and you know that you have nothing to say and you know that it's not going right. The sweat begins to build. And you're like, get me out of here. I just want to go underneath of this floor somehow. That's kind of how I felt. And as a pastor, you know, you just you go into your bag of tricks and you say, let's pray. <laughs> the, the prayer solves most things. Um, Good grief, I've heard horror stories of people preaching bad sermons. When, um, 
a friend of mine went to a different youth group and they had a carpet, like a multi-purpose carpet floor where you played basketball on Mondays and they'd move the chairs away. And he brought in this metal bucket and he wanted all the, all the people to write down the things that were sins in their life that represented stuff. So basically it was like porn, 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 porn at this youth group. You know, so it's like they put it in this, this bucket. I'll bring it back here for a second. They put it in there and then he lit it on fire and he walked away. It's a metal bucket on carpet, okay? And the way that my friend described it, he was like, it was a flaming bucket of lust right in front of us and the carpet caught on fire. And I was like, oh. Another friend of ours, this is a friend of a friend. He's Doug's friend. I don't know him as well, but um, he actually burned down the church preaching a sermon. Something happened with the candles. They're not lit today, so we're good. We're, things won't go down in flames. Um, but yeah, somehow they, just, they walked away and then they came back like, oh man, burn the church down. That analogy didn't work out real well. <laughs> kind of a moment. We have those, those, those sermons, and a lot of times, I'll be honest, I'm standing up here in front of you, and I'm in my mind, I'm, I'm saying things, but in my mind, I'm thinking, is this landing? Do they care? I see this guy over here asleep, and that person over there doing that, and I just, this isn't probably working. And it seems as though the things that we hope to happen aren't really happening. One thing that gives me hope, and we see this actually playing out in, in Jonah's sermon as well, even though this is very much beyond uh, Jonah's time. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Skipping a few verses. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. This whole thing that we do is foolishness. Paul continues in, in chapter two, um, says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I think Paul's lying there, actually. I mean, he was a pretty smart guy. I'm sure he was eloquent. Um, but nonetheless, in his, in his own mind, perhaps, perhaps he's a perfectionist. I'm not trying to call into the scripture into question here. Keep going. Verse two, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. There's so many applications for this with preaching, but with life where we try to do what we can do to the best of our ability and circumvent God and say, I got this, let me just try to convince them or let me tell this story or let me do this thing. If I could just tell them about that Olympics moment, then everyone will be weeping and the spirit will fall and everyone will be saved. It'll be like Pentecost. And it'll only take me four minutes. But here we, we see that it's not because of the, the cool things that we say, it doesn't mean that we don't try and it doesn't mean that people can't get saved through intellectual conversation. But it does mean that there's, there's a certain level of pressure that comes off of us because God is going to do what God wants to do through his word and he will use a lot of different people to, to accomplish that. In the background of this story is these people don't deserve grace. 
For some of you, you believe that you don't deserve grace and God could never use you. And all throughout scripture, it's like, hey, uh, I can and I want to. I want you to partner with me in this. Hold that in the back of your head here, but we see how this is playing out for, for Jonah in this passage because he doesn't really give a riveting sermon. He just says, 40 more days and you guys will die. And the people of Nineveh believed. Whew. That, that worked out for Jonah. I mean, his message was not exactly the most eloquent. It was just a few words and they actually took it to heart. This is strange because they have gods of their own. And for this guy to show up and saying, um, my God's gonna kill all of you guys in 40 days. They buy it immediately. It says, not only do they just believe this, they proclaimed a fast and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. I want you to pull out that piece of uh, burlap that you guys have on your way in. And I just want you to hold it. I'm a, I'm a tactile fiend. You know this about me. I had that blanket with the satin edges, fold it up into a sharp corner, rub it all over my face. That's kind of where I was. And still to this day, I do that. I'm always touching and I'm always, I like to hold things, but the texture of that burlap kind of get it. It's rough, it's coarse. And what would happen is they proclaim a fast and they put on sackcloth. They remove whatever they have on and they put this, this clothes on themselves. This isn't the most comfortable of attire. When I come home from a long day, I want to take off my Mr. Rogers sweater and put on my sweatpants and just exist in them. Kate and I were going out on the town yesterday and I'm in my sweatpants and I say to her, do I have to put on real clothes or can I just wear this sweatsuit? <laughs> Sweatsuit, yes, that's how I go. Um, but they're, they're putting this on to symbolize the fact that their repentance is not just an internal, no one else can see it sort of moment. It's, I'm gonna actually physically change the clothes that I'm wearing and put on my repenting clothes. <laughs> I'm gonna put on my repenting suit so that everyone will know what it is that I'm doing and so that I can actually do it properly. Continues on. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne. He removed his robe. Some translations would say his royal robes. This isn't just those things that we see on the bad Jesus movies, like the toga type stuff. This is like the sign of his royalty. Before we talk about that, there's also this moment. There probably, <clears throat> there probably wasn't a king of Nineveh. There was a king of Assyria, but the author is just kind of dipping into this story and saying, this guy who symbolizes the captain of the ship in chapter one gets it. And what he does with it is incredible. It says he gets up from this throne, takes off his robes, covers himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes or dust and puts ashes on himself. This is not what royalty does. Yet he is engaging in this act of repentance because he thinks and perhaps knows that the message is legit. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. Not only is this something personal for him, he's taking it out to the streets. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animals. Catch that. Again, this story is like just building upon itself. It's crazy on top of crazy on top of crazy. Now we have no human being or the animals, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They, they can't eat food, nor shall they drink any water. This is called an absolute fast. He's cutting it off. I don't know if his plan was to go 40 days and just die from starvation or if they're just going to 
hedge their bets. Like, I don't know, but the, the plan was, I, we're not gonna eat anything and we're not gonna drink anything. We're going to engage in this act of repentance in a way that you can see, in a way that affects our skin, in a way that affects our bodies. It's not just, I'm gonna go into my prayer closet, close the door so that no one can see me and I'm going to pray in my mind without speaking words out loud because Jesus can hear them. It's not that moment of individual um, spirituality. This is corporate. This is we're all in this together. And this is something that affected them in very real, physical, tangible ways. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth. They're putting the clothes on their animals. They are taking this seriously. This is not a Paul situation where you just do whatever you do and you say, hey, you'll forgive me, right? We're good. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna do that again later. It's not that for them. There's a, there's a complete transformation where they're taking this so seriously that the animals are gonna be covered in sackcloth. And some people even like to play on this too. And they, who's the they? The human beings and ostensibly the animals are crying out to God. Like everybody from babies to old people to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, they're all in repentance because they don't want God to do what God is saying he's going to do. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. There's rituals of repentance that are very ancient that are tied to this culture and community. They're external, but they're also internal. We don't focus so much on the external rituals. Yeah, we read a confession and some of you might totally check out in that moment or not really know what's going on or don't really engage in it. But we usually don't take scripture at, at scripture's word and confess sins one to another. We don't usually engage in corporate uh, rites of, of confession. We don't um, repent in a way where people can see it because we're embarrassed. Because when you're repenting of something, you're, you're having to say of yourself, I was wrong. I made a mistake. And we don't like to do that. But here in this text, it's, it's external. It's sackcloth. It's ashes. It's, um, it's, it's all these things, but it's also internal where something is actually happening to these people in the midst of, of their hearts and in the midst of, of their context. They say, who knows, God might relent or turn around and change his mind. He might turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. What's happening here in this moment is these people are doing everything that they can to intercede to God, to have him go in a different direction. Their prayers are intense. Their repentance is real. They're, um, they're seeking God and in a sense asking God to be merciful. I wonder if when we pray, if we take on this sort of idea, this who knows, if we pray, maybe God will do something different. Who knows? Maybe if we pray, then things can change. As we sit here, I know that the weight in the room is we've tried that and it doesn't work. I would implore you in the midst of life's difficulties and suffering and past experiences where God didn't show up in that way where we were asking him to show up, whatever that means to you in your experience, don't let that be the thing that holds you back from entering into something that, that goes beyond just 
a tacit prayer here or there where we actually engage God. And I'm not pointing fingers at you any more than I am right here back to me because there's moments in life that test us and try us and we can't become so jaded and cynical that we give up on the whole thing. And we're learning this from the Ninevites, the people that were so far gone that were testing God's people. Their politics were out the window. Their gods were not Yahweh but they're teaching us all these things about what it looks like to follow God and for us, what it looks like to follow Christ in the midst of stuff. Um, Leslie Allen says, men cannot twist God's arm. Even genuine repentance is no virtue by which to win his approval. His reaction lies hidden behind the clouds of mystery and glory that surround his throne until it emerges into human experience. That's wordy for God is sovereign But in this text, we also see that there's freedom in God going about it in a different way. And at times, I hope that our prayers reflect that where we are seeking, not only on behalf of ourselves, but seeking on behalf of the people around us for God to do something different. The passage uh, culminates with this in verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind. He relented. Some translations would say he repented about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. In this story, we learn a lot of different things. Um, The thing that I wanna focus in on tonight though is this idea of repentance. Wherever we are, There's people in this room, perhaps myself included, that are taking advantage of the grace of Christ by using it to get away with what we want to get away with. We're not living in light of transformation. Our repentance is not one that has the textures of burlap. It's it's cheap. It's fleeting. It's not indicative of transformation. It's selfish. It's us saying, give me this so that I can do this or give me this so that this will happen. What we learn here from these folks are in the midst of, um, of our lives, there's a texture to repentance that we can feel it, that people can see it, that we can engage in it in ways that go beyond a softly spoken prayer. I don't mean that God doesn't hear those, but if it stops there, I wonder. A lot of times in my life, it stops there. But what we see in this text is God being slow to anger, abounding in love, wanting to forgive, wanting to allow repentance to take root in your lives and so that you become who he's created you to be. And as we sit here right now in the heat of this room, there's there's some of us that need that to take root in our lives where it's no longer just about getting away with things. It's about partnering with Christ in this beautiful act of redemption that's happening all around us to be, to rip off the cliche, to be the change that people see, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be folks that can move in repentance from their sins into freedom, that can move from the things that bind them into these new levels of understanding and following and submission, where people can see the sackcloth and the ash on our lives 
Because when we make mistakes, we can call ourselves on it. We can apologize to the people that we need to and we can enter into that relationship with Christ as well. I want us to sit here um, for a moment. We're gonna launch into our typical ways of, of closing the service with communion and, and giving and prayer. Um, but I wanna allow you a moment, 30 seconds perhaps, where we just think through this story and how it hits us and how it demonstrates Christ in our lives and, and this idea of repentance and if the repentance that we have been engaging in has been cheap or it's been costly, if we've actually been transformed by the love of Jesus or if we're taking advantage of the love of Christ to get away with whatever we want to, if our lives haven't shown the evidence of a life and submission to, to Jesus, we're just just pray with me together for, for 30 seconds and then I'll, I'll close us. But really think through that. If it helps you to hold on to that burlap and just run it through your fingers and think about your own brokenness and your weakness and your, your sin, then do that and just feel the textures perhaps of repentance together as we seek Christ.